Blog Talk Radio. I always sit and wait for that Blog Talk Radio to come on. <laughs> when I used to come on off the shelf to our listeners, I used to uh, start talking and then I would get interrupted with Blog Talk Radio. So now I always <laughs> wait until that goes off before I introduce the show. I want to welcome you all to this. Can you believe it's September the 20th already? I mean, we're already... Then to the end of the month, this time just goes by so incredibly fast. But I want to welcome all of you to Off the Shelf for this Saturday, September the 20th. It's just a, it's just a gorgeous day. To our loyal listeners, thank you for being here with us and those who come in by for the first time. I always like to introduce myself, and I always say I'm Denise Turney, and I'm coming to you live from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We had a guest on last week who actually used to live in Philadelphia, uh, and he actually has written about four novels. He used to be a sports journalist here in the city, and he covered a lot of sports in Philadelphia. So there was uh, somebody from Philadelphia connecting with us once again. But I thank all of you for your support, and I encourage you, please pick up a copy of Love Pour Over Me. And why do I say that? If you love mystery... And if you really value relationships, they're complicated relationships in love for over me, one between a father and a son, there's a group of friends, and between Raymond, the main character, and the love of his life, Brenda, you'll see these characters develop as they go through different situations. And some of the changes you see occur to them by the end of the book might really amaze you, but it probably will remind you of your own life and other people's that you know. It's really a book about love. And the title again is Love Pour Over Me by me, Denise Turney. You can get it, Barnes & Noble, uh, Amazon, iTunes, Walmart, it, it, you name it. If you don't see it on the shelf, ebook it carries it. If you don't see it on the shelf, it's in um, ebook form and in print. All you have to do is ask the clerk for it. Tell them you want to get a copy of Love Pour Over Me by Denise Turney, and they can order you a special copy. And also, if you go to Frito, F-R-E-A-D-O, they sometimes run specials where you can get a free copy of the books as well. But it's Love Pour Over Me by Denise Turney. Thank you, and let me know how you enjoy the book if you get a copy of it. And now, let us go and meet our very special off-the-shelf guest. And today's guest has been on Off the Shelf before, so we are delighted to have her back on. Her name is Angel Floyd. She's a very talented writer. If you want to get a taste for her style, you can go to her website or you can check out some of her books at Amazon where they let you read a couple of pages for free excerpts. But Angel is a psychologist. She's a wife and a mother. She's also the author of the books The House, Keeper of Secrets, Seasons of Perda, and her new book is titled When the Drum Major Died. You can check her out online at angelfloyd.com, and I'll spell that for you. It's A-N-J-U-E-L-L-E-F-L-O-Y-D-E.com, and again, that's A-N-J-U-E-L-L-E-F-L-O-Y-D.com. We are so happy to have you back with us this Saturday, Angel, on Off the Shelf. Welcome, welcome. Thank you for having me back. It's good to be back. It's really good to be back. And we want to delve into your latest book, When the Drum Major Died, and also talk 
briefly about your other books because some of our listeners may not have caught some of your other interviews here on Off the Shelf, and they might not. They might just this might be their introduction to your other books. I always like to give some backstory on our guests for our listeners so they can feel like, oh, who am I talking? Who am I listening to? So I want to start by saying, I know at your official website again, which is com, you say your grandmother inspired your love of story. And what specific ways did she inspire you to to develop a love or a passion for reading and writing? Well, two ways that my grandmother did that. One, she told me stories herself about her life, and my grandmother was, in her 60s, I was born in 1960, so she was born in 19, well, probably her 70s. She was born in, in 1895, so she had a lot of stories to tell me, having grown up and lived her entire life in North Carolina, a very small southern town in North Carolina called Faison. And as well, right by um, where she used to sit and look at her her uh, soap operas, um she had this bookshelf. Now, the bookshelf was not even as tall as I am now as an adult, but as a child, it looked huge, and it was filled with books. And that's where I would spend my quiet time when she would look at her soap operas. And so combined with her telling me stories and me reading the books that she collected, spending my quiet time, that's how I came to love the, the whole idea of sharing stories as well as reading, which is really the essence of what writing is all about. Yes, yes, a- absolutely. And 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 taking, I was thinking about this: how writers really take like a- a abstract thought and turn it into something concrete and clear, and share it with with you know other people. But the the main thing is, like you say, the story that you tell and the characters. I wanted to get a little bit into character development during today's show because not only do you need a good story, a good plot, but in this with your psychology experience, you really know how to delve into the human mind and look at your intentions, your motivations, what's driving a person. I'm sure that helps you as you develop your characters. Now you said your grandmother inspired your love for story, but who who Piggybacking on what I just said, who or what inspired you? Was it an experience or a person that inspired you to go after psychology? You know, that's an interesting question. I I, I think there's one lady, and I forget her name. She was um, the wife of a minister. And I grew up in a Pentecostal church. My mother was Baptist, but my father was Pentecostal. And so I grew up in this Pentecostal church, and they had a lot of youth activities. And this one minister and his wife really were the um, the the instigators for this large youth ministry. And I went to one of the the activities that the this, this um, minister and his wife were, were were spearheading. And she had, as she was getting ready for the the service to start, she was talking to my mother. And as a child, you knew when there were certain periods where adults were talking and you were only to listen. So I developed this this ability to listen. But I think that's a Southern thing, too. You know, you, you, you learn to listen. And so I was listening to this uh, minister's wife and my mother talk, and the minister's wife said something that I've never forgotten. She said, some people 
watch the television. They watch what people wear. They watch, you know, the newspaper. But she said, I like to watch people and what they do and say. Mm. And, you know, I thought, that is very interesting. And it resonated with me even at probably no more than 11 years old because I found people fascinating. So to hear an adult say that, and a, an adult who was a minister's wife, you know, a woman, I could, I thought there's something important about that. And so as I grew up, I, you know, I went to college, I got married. And I did take psychology courses in college, but I wasn't a psychology major. I was a science major. I ended up being a medical technologist working in a lab, a blood bank. And my husband uh, was in graduate school. And when we had our first daughter, who is now, I should say, 26 years old, um, I took some time off to be with her. And I remember I started reading. Here we go back to reading again. And two psychologists or two just huge monuments in the field of psychology that I wanted to read about were Zygmunt Freud and Carl Jung. Little did I know that, I mean, I knew they were huge, but little did I know how huge they were, even at 27. And I remember reading about them and reading these books and being very much interested in child development. I had just had a baby. And so I did a lot of reading between the ages of 27 and 32. At 32, I had my second child, but by that time, we had moved to the West Coast. And I had also started studying astrology. And I remember I went to see an astrologer, and um, he asked me, what do you want to do? He said, it's the time in your life. Your chart says it's the time in your life you decide what you want to do. I said, he said, if you could do anything, what would you do? I said, if I could do anything, I would be pregnant and I would be working on my master's in psychology to become a psychotherapist. He said, then why don't you do it? And I did it. I literally did it. Oh, okay. It's interesting when you look at, when you see how people, the path that someone took to get to where they are, is, is it, that we all take these different paths. Sometimes we several people end up at the same spot in the end, but it's just the path they took to get there. I wanted to ask you, so what did you start doing first, working? I know you worked as a marriage and family therapist. Did you start doing that first as a licensed counselor, or did you sit down and actually write a novel first? I was actually doing my internship when I started writing um, my first novel, which is not published. It's historical fiction. It's a trilogy. It's paranormal. Who would have thought back then? because I started writing back in 1996. But I was actually doing my internship here in California and in most states. When you get your master's in psychology, you then have to do some kind of training for a number of years, collect a number of hours where you see clients under the supervision of someone that's already licensed. Um, And I was doing that, and I was doing that. uh, I was working both at a correctional facility for adults, men and women, and I was also, I had also worked at a, uh, a college, at an art school in the counseling department. But by the time I got to writing, um, I, I was um, pretty much at the end of, it, it, was, it was becoming clear that the art school was not a place for me to, to be at that time. 
And um, essentially what happened was I decided to take some time off. My supervisor became really agitated that I wanted to take some time off. And, again, I went back to my astrologer. I realized I, I, I go back to the astrologist. And she said to me, you were married to this man in another life. And I was like, okay. Um, I can't say whether that's true or not. I'm not saying I believe in past lives. I'm not saying I don't. But what I can tell you is that um, I went to get my hair done one day. I came home. I had this excruciating headache, kind of like the goddess, Greek goddess Palisathene. And I sat down to start writing. And I was going to be writing about my clients. That was my intention, to just kind of journal about my clients at the art school. And what I ended up writing was a story. I mean, it literally just started pouring out of me. And I just kept writing for five years because I wanted to see what was going to happen. Literally, that's what happened. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) So many writers, and I know to readers it probably is fascinating because I'm fascinated with painters and people who take music from nothing, not, not taking music that already exists. And, and sort of rearranging it, but from nothing, where does that come from? And even writers seem to be fascinated themselves with where is this story coming from? It's like it's just flowing through you. Now, do your novels generally focus on being that you licensed marriage and family therapists? Do your novels generally focus on couples who are having complicated relationship issues? Do you Do you find yourself drifting down that path when you write uh is that something that you or you deliberately focus on complicated relationship issues in your novels well i i i would say that my novels do center on um intimate relationships with um my my characters it's generally a man or generally a woman and her significant other they tend to be married uh i i have a ton of manuscripts um of course, I've got only four novels that are published, but most of my manuscripts pretty much are about relationships, either with uh, a woman and her significant other or a woman and her significant other and her family. Um, and, you know, that's what marriage and family therapists do. We work with our individual clients or families or couples to, to, with the goal of helping them to improve their ability to relate to those people that they're closest to and that they love. And that's what I like about being a marriage and family therapist because the the world turns on relationships. And if you can't hold relationship, quality relationship, with the people that you're closest to that love you and whom you love, you really aren't going to be very successful in getting and uh, accomplishing the, the, the desires and goals of, of your life. No, and I agree. I, think the, I actually think the world is nothing but relationships. It, 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 like you said, if you want to really find out how happy you are, you measure, you know, the depth of your relationships and how good are they. I, I really do. If you have a lot of troubled relationships, you're probably not going to be that happy. Uh, I wanted to next, if you could just treat our off-the-shelf listeners to a brief overview of your latest book, your new book, When the Drum Major Died. Well, when the drum major died, it centers on relationship again. Uh, it's a, it looks at um, two newly married couples, and when I say newly married, uh, one of the couples, in fact, the the couple where we have the major character in, is only days. She's only days married, and it's it opens in December 1967 when Martin Luther King had said he was going to have his Poor People's March started laying down plans for that, which unfortunately never 
it didn't he wasn't able to 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 carry it out but it was scheduled for may of uh 1968 so we have this major character florina gavin um austin that's her married name and she's newly married and literally she comes up to the steps of the house where she's going to be living with her new husband her new husband she has moved to Poinsettia, this fictional town, Poinsettia, North Carolina, four hours away from her home, which was a farm in southeastern North Carolina. And when she comes up to the steps, she sees this lady sitting on her steps. The lady's probably no more than two years older than Florina. And the How old was Florina again? Lot. I'm sorry. Florina was How about was 24. Okay. She was 24 years old, and her husband was 29. He's a newly trained surgeon, third generation, just come back from Howard University, and um, and when she sees this woman, the woman introduces herself and literally invites Florina into Florina's what is to be Florina's own home. This lady lives <laughs> next door to Florina. Okay. I mean, it's 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 really it, it's kind of spooky and and it's a bit you know annoying, but that's how Florina's relationship begins with this lady, and uh, the lady doesn't even introduce herself to Florina. Lorena has to learn about the lady's name later that evening. And um, they're literally neighbors. Their houses sit close enough where Lorena can look from her house into this other woman's house and vice versa. And um, Lorena is, brings into her marriage some secrets, but she very quickly learns that her husband is bringing some secrets into his marriage. And those secrets have to do with that other couple uh, of the woman who um, – who introduced herself and didn't really tell Florina her name. So um, it's it's about the relationship that Florina has with her husband. It's about the relationship that Florina has with her new neighbor. But it's also about, as all stories are, about the relationship that Florina has with herself. And we get to see how she grows and and becomes um, and and it's transformed by all the things that have, that happen both personally and within the relationship with this lady against the backdrop of all that's going on between December 67 and right on up until the day that Martin Luther King is killed. Uh, so it's covering about a year, about a year of time. Uh-huh. Or, or yeah. Now, how about, about are, four months. Oh, okay, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah you're, it's December, you're right. How are Florina, and we know her husband's a surgeon, and she grew up on a farm, did she have a lot of siblings? How's her relationship with her parents? And the other woman's name is Agnes. She, exactly. She's sitting on the she's sitting on the porch. Can you describe Florina and give her background and Agnes and give her background and tell us how they're different from each other? Florina is obviously she's she's new to the town. We later we later not very quickly, but pretty soon we learned that. Agnes is very is somewhat familiar with Poinsettia. She's been there before. She's obviously been living there since um, April of '67. So she's been she's been there for about a year. But Florina has just come in December, and so she's she's new to the town. Um, Agnes was brought up in Baltimore on the Mason Dixon, okay. and Florina, while Florina has been to college. She basically has grown up on the farm. Lorena's relationship with her parents is strained, and it's it's that strain in the relationship that propels her to accept 
Redmond, her husband's proposal, um, and I think I can tell the readers this, Florina has a secret, and the secret is that she got married in college. She went to um, a, a college in Durham, North Carolina, where her mother went and where her godmother went. That's how her mother and her godmother met. And they okay. were both teachers, and they had aspirations that Florina would go there, get an education, and do similar things to, to them, teach and, and, and so forth. Well, Florina, in her, at the end of her junior year, and she's got great grades and everything's going fine, she comes home and all her parents see is that she, at the end of August, says, I'm not going back to school. Uh. And they do not learn until farther into the story, at, long after she's married to Redmond, why she didn't get married, why she uh, didn't go back to school. And it's because she was depressed and mourning. She was, uh, her husband died in, she met a guy and they oh. fell in love and they got married and he went to Vietnam and he was unfortunately killed. His mother, who who was the only adult that knew about the marriage, was was very loving of Florina and did not, and specifically did not tell her until Florina she knew had finished her final exams. And um, so Florina is, is, you know, has yet to explain to her when the book opens. Um, Lorena has just married Redmond because she had yet to explain to her parents why she didn't go back to school. All she could tell them was, I'm just not ready to go back to school. And her mother probably would have made her go back, but her father was very sensitive. And unfortunately, he had not finished college. And he, he you know, how some parent, one parent kind of knows when you, it's not the time to push a child. And so mm-hmm. at the, at her father's behest, he said, you know, let's just, you know, let's just leave it be. You know, it'll work itself out. And, of course, what happens over, um, Florina stays home one year, and the following summer, which is the summer of 67, it's a year after she's come home. She came home the summer of 66. She would have graduated the summer of 67. But during that summer of 67, when all of the United States was ablaze, not unlike what was going on in Ferguson, uh, Missouri, this summer, um, we've got all these uh, these uh, soldiers that Westmoreland is calling for in Vietnam, and President Johnson at that time was giving him, I think in December 67, we had almost half a million soldiers deployed in Vietnam halfway around the world. So um, we had all these demonstrations going on. I think in October of 67, we had... Um, Thurgood Marshall appointed to the Supreme Court, but also at the same time, at the end of October, we had uh, Martin Luther King incarcerated in Birmingham jail and writing his letters and so forth. So it was a really crazy, um, hopeful, but very frightening time for America and for African Americans who were fighting the battle for uh, civil rights. And in the midst of this, you've got Florina having been home a year, Having not, having not explained to her parents why she came home. And then you have this man that she meets over the summer when she goes to her godmother's house. Uh, Redmond had come home that summer. His parents, who were doctors, and knew uh, Florina's godparents, who the, Florina's godfather was a doctor in the small town where she grew up. And she was trying to get some strawberries out of the car, and she almost dropped the crate. Redmond runs out, and that's how they meet. And the two parents get together, and they're literally like, this is who we want you two to get with. They kind of worked this out. And Redmond liked her. And so Redmond uh, kept coming to visit her after July of 67, and by October asked her to marry him. And uh-huh. um, she said she said yes. She said yes. And part of the reason was 
I didn't get my college degree. My parents want me to marry this man, and they were delighted that um, both her godparents and her parents were delighted that uh, both Redmond and his parents liked her because she hadn't finished college. You know, okay. that was a very big thing. So uh, she she says, I'm going to accept this. I'm going to accept this, this proposal. I'm going to do the best I can. I'm not, I'm still mourning my husband, but Redmond's a good man. I'll, I'll go there. I'll, 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 I'll get my life together, you know? And then she goes, so the book opens where she's just arrived in, in Poinsettia, Poinsettia. And within 10 or 15 pages, um, no more than 20, we see Florina um, discover something about Redmond. Uh, basically, she sees uh, Agnes caress Redmond's cheek, and she knows they've got a history. What have I gotten myself ah, into? And you know how that is. <laughs> ah, here we go. Yeah. So Agnes is, yeah. Agnes is married too, though, right? Yes, Agnes is married to. Um, is she a, is other, she a flirt, or is she? Is she I like mean, other you know, like? She she comes on as a flirt. Agnes is like a number of people that I think all of us know or have known at some point. They have this facade where it looks like it's Teflon and nothing sticks. And they and she's a very beautiful woman. She's very fair skinned. She's from um she's from Baltimore. Her father was a uh, is a huge minister, and um she she wears all the latest fashion. She wears her heels even when she's just going to the grocery store. Oh um, wow! She can pa- she can pass for white, and um you know it's she has this 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 facade, but very quickly. Very quickly, um, Florina sees something in her that is very vulnerable. At the same time, she sees something that angers and frustrates her. Because to suspect that this woman has a history with her husband doesn't leave Florina feeling good at all. But right. Florina, uh, but Agnes has a touches a part of Florina that while wow, Florina can't quite identify it. She knows that there's more to the story than than meets the eye, and so mm-hmm. um, because both of them are are relatively new to living in Poinsettia, and um, also Florina witnesses some incidents between uh, Agnes and her husband and Agnes's husband Macon. Macon is Macon grew up with um, with Florina's husband Redmond. And along with but Florina doesn't father, know any of this. Well, Florina learns. I mean, she, you know, it's it's it's. There's no reason to hide that you know Macon grew up in in okay. Poinsettia because Macon's parents own a store, and uh, Florina frequents that store, and so um, it's an interesting piece for Florina to find out that Agnes doesn't go to her own in-law's store. She chooses to go to the, the local A&P. And so, um, you know, there's, there's, some, there's some things that, that, that Florina looks at that make her take a side glance at, at Agnes. But then there's some things that she witnesses Macon do. And Macon is um, a small-town boy gone off to become a doctor, and he is in competition with Redmond. Redmond's a surgeon. Macon is 
is a is a family practice doctor, and then of course, Redmond is third generation. His father is still living. He still lives in the town, and Redmond gets a lot of just respect for being his father's son. And of course, Redmond's mm. grandfather was a doctor. So there's 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 this this small town tension going on. In the in the and all of this is in case in the African American community, and then we're looking at it through the lens of Florina's eyes in her relationship, not only with Redmond but with her relationship in her relationship and through her relationship with Agnes, who is like Florina, new to the town, and again the backdrop of these things that are going on out in the country. One of the things that is quite um, revealing of of Agnes's vulnerability is. She she reveals to uh, or she tells Lorena very early on that she was present when uh, Malcolm X was killed. One of the things that uh, is very dear to to Agnes's heart is following and participating in the various marches that are led by the uh, the black leaders of that time. She was there. She unfortunately witnessed the horrible killing of Malcolm X. And she also runs off and goes to um, the funeral of, of the young pain, 16-year-old Payne child that was killed during one of the protest marches between the, the Memphis sanitation workers and the city police uh, of Memphis. So, um, you know, she's, she's, after Malcolm X is killed, um, Agnes then pours all her energy into keeping up with um, with what Martin Luther King is doing. And, in fact, she has not forgiven her husband that he chose to marry her. Here the man is choosing the, the, the wedding date. On April 4th, 1967, exactly one year before Martin Luther King himself was killed, That's the that in 67 he was supposed, and he did speak at the uh, Riverside Church and in New York, and Agnes really wanted to go. But her okay. husband didn't want to go. So she. This is where she, when she listens to Agnes and watches all the clippings that reads all the clippings that Agnes says, she sees this other side of Agnes that um, really is endearing. And um, and Agnes puts a lot on on the line by she she regularly runs off to go and and to these marches against her husband's wishes. And so it's. It's kind of an interesting story from that perspective. Yeah, how do you? I was getting ready to ask you because it's titled "When the Drum Major Died," which I'm, I'm assuming is about the Reverend Martin King Jr. when he passed. Yeah. Um, yeah. Why is is there a, is there a particular reason why you titled the book "When the Drum Major Died"? Well, I read this book years ago when the Emperor was divine, and it was. The emperor in in that title represented Emperor Hirohito, and the story, or but the story, was focused on this little girl who lived in in San Francisco, and her experience of her and her family being taken to an internment camp when America was rounding up all Japanese citizens, taking them from their homes extricating them from their belongings and putting them in internment camps not that dissimilar from concentration camps. They weren't killed, of course, and they weren't gassed or 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 mistreated in in that kind of way, but they were rounded up 
and put in internment camps. And I always found that the, the juxtaposition to be quite interesting when the emperor was divine. Um, certainly the emperor was divine when the Japanese flew over and bombed Pearl Harbor. We know that eventually General MacArthur um, oversaw the, um, how can I say, the uh, the stepping down of Emperor Hirohito. And actually we see that when we see um, a picture that includes both uh, uh, General MacArthur, along with this div- this figure that was divine to the Japanese people, Hirohito. But I always thought that title was really interesting, the juxtaposition when the emperor was divine, and here this little girl was going through internment here in America. And so when I was working on this novel, the backdrop, you know, similar to when the when the uh, emperor was divine, is when the drum major died. The months leading up to um, from December 67 to April 68 were, were excruciating for Dr. Martin Luther King. I remember I worked on a paper with my middle daughter, who's now 22. She was in second grade. I worked on a paper with her uh, about Dr. Martin Luther King, and I was, I was amazed and both uh, touched to learn just how depressed he was. And not only did he foresee, you know, something coming that wasn't obviously in his best interest, literally. Um, but he was very despairing of the state, uh, the emotional state that America was in and how uh, and, and the, the nature of the relationship between um, that, that whites had to, to African-Americans. And, and I think he, he began to see just how deeply this, um, I, you know, I don't know if you can say it's, it's just hatred, but just, um, how entrenched uh, whites were in their belief of their superiority to the degree that they just did not, many of them just did not want to acknowledge that um, African Americans were human and equal to any person on the planet. That was very despairing to him. And so to have it culminate in his death, you, when you go back and look at it, it's kind of like a book. You, you're you surprised at the end, but then when you go back and look at everything, you're like, oh, I can see how it came to this point. So right. when the drum major died, it's not just about the day he died, but it's about all those months from December 67 leading up to uh, to his death. And I did a lot of research on that time, and, and there are a lot of poignancies that I certainly couldn't bring into the book but that I try, you know, literally couldn't bring into the book, but tried to infuse it through my characters in the um, the turmoil that they're they're facing. Because for those of you that read the book, you get to see that there's a spiraling down of of feeling in the book, and um, and there's pe- there's entrenched beliefs that people don't want to let go of. Mm-hmm. You 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 lead into my my next question, and uh, your the book sounds incredibly interesting and I definitely want to talk about character development because you're very good with that. Now you tackle resistance to change and when the drum major died. Why do you think from your psychologist from just in writing the book, your the research you did for the to to gather the material to create the book with why do you think that we hold on to old habits and old patterns? I mean for so Long, you could think whether it's domestic violence, whether it's 
somebody abusing a child, whatever that we just we we hide. We know it's wrong if we have a thought or a belief that's wrong because we hide it. And if it, you don't think it's wrong, why are you hiding it? So, but why do you think we hold on? Even we know it's wrong. We know it's not beneficial. We don't even want to try to change it. We'd rather hide it and pretend it's not there. Why do you think we do that when even those old ways have proven over and over again not to work or benefit us? Well, you have a really good question. Um, and the way I'm going to enter that is if you've ever noticed babies, uh, they they need something and they they should be given something to help them soothe themselves. Sometimes they suck their thumbs. Sometimes they suck their binky. Uh, we also know that for mothers that breastfeed, it's not only a way to feed your child physically, but it's also a way that you feed your child emotionally. Uh, self-soothing is a very important ability to develop because we all have to know how to do it, even right into adulthood. But self-soothing at the bottom of that is really a way of telling yourself that the next moment is going to be like this moment. Ah. The next moment is going to be like this moment. And what we what I'm really talking about is that and 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 we know that the next moment is not like the is not like the previous moment because the only thing that as the Buddha said, the only thing that is constant is change. So self-soothing right. is really a way of getting ourselves from one moment to the next. One moment to the ah. next. Facing all the changes that are going to come, period. There's nothing you and I are or anyone else can do about it. When it comes to the matter of, of of initiating a change, never mind we're afraid of the changes that are just inherent. When you start talking about initiating a change, what you're literally asking someone to do is not only to accept that the moment, this moment is going, this mo- the, the next moment is going to be different from this moment, but to become part and parcel of that change. Accept the change but you're asking them to become the change. And that's a very frightening order for a lot of people. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying that when you part of what the human race struggles with from from birth is accepting change. And self-soothing is a way, sucking our thumbs, twiddling our thumbs, literally is a way of telling ourselves, there's something that I have to do now that I can take with me into the next moment. Because I know the next moment can be different, but I need to have something that creates continuity. Now, here's where we get into relationships. Because relationships are really the only thing that we have the opportunity to take from this moment to the next. And relationships, we know, can sustain us through change. What do we tell each other? We tell each other, yes, you may lose things, but as long as the people that you love are around you and all right, you can make it. That's what we tell each other, and that's true. You could lose your house. You could lose your car. But if you come home and you've got your family, you've got something that can help you through that difficult time. Mm-hmm. And it, and so relationship with oneself, what we get to see is that relationship with oneself is inter, integrally uh, and interdependent upon relationship with other people and vice versa. Now, when it comes to people making change, um, 
that's where they really need those relationships. And unfortunately, unfortunately, our participation in habits such as that are abusive to not only ourselves but to other people, you know, uh, addictions uh, to to substances that hurt us. I'm not talking about smoking because smoking, secondhand smoke is very dangerous to those you're around. But let's right. say using drugs, using alcohol, overeating, uh, addiction. I mean, I have an addiction to sugar. I'll just be blunt about it. I have, an, I have a sweet tooth. That's an addiction to sugar. Um, addiction to alcohol, all of that. D- addiction to sex, addiction to, to abuse, you know, uh-huh. a, a vi- to violence. When we start talking about initiating a change, becoming the change, that's when we really need those relationships. And I firmly believe that the reason most people don't and aren't able to make those changes of stopping doing whatever it is that's harming them and or others is because the flip side of those addictions involves isolating oneself from everyone else. Yeah. You see, when you drink, you isolate yourself. Yeah. And when you hit someone, you isolate yourself. When you hit someone, nobody wants to be around you. Right. And so... And what it means is, and and oftentimes people, if you really get to the core of it, people um, get involved in these addictions because it's a way, it's a a non-healthy and very destructive way of self-soothing. We're back to the Ah. whole thing again. This is how people, there are ways, there are healthy ways and unhealthy ways to self-soothe. And oftentimes if we don't have the parents around or the adults around, to show us and to encourage us and to assist us, to show, encourage, and assist us in developing healthy ways of self-soothing, we will develop these unhealthy ways of self-soothing, which is to Mm -hmm. abuse our bodies, to abuse other people. So when it comes to change, we don't have the relationship to support us in the change. I mean, with my, my sugar habit, I can say to my oldest daughter, now I'm going to eat a brownie. I'm going to let myself have one brownie this week. That's my hope, my sugar for the week, you know, as far as uh-huh. pastries go. And I went out with her yesterday, and I can say, I want you to hold this brownie for me, and I'm, I, and, and this is the piece I want you to give me. And she'll do it. <laughs> and, I'll, and, you know, and help, people who have healthy relationships with their families, they generally don't have they don't participate in, a, in, a, in, 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 in habits that are abusive to their body or abusive to other people. Think about it. Mm-hmm. People that are, that are in happy families, people that stop uh, in healthy relationships, they, they don't have a need to drink. Yeah. They don't, they don't have a need. Um, and it's, it's twofold. I mean, I don't think anyone chooses to go out and become an alcoholic. I don't think anyone chooses to go out and um, and become an abusive husband or abusive wife, both emotionally or physically. I think these are things that we do under Im- immense duress. These things develop. Bullying. Bullying is nothing but a precursor to abuse, to physical abuse. 
That's all it is. Bullying is nothing but a precursor to physical abuse. Most bullies are going to grow up, I don't care whether they're girls or boys, they're going to grow up to become abusive parents, most likely, and or abusive spouses. Yeah, I read that somewhere as well. Yeah, yeah. And they they, they probably come from homes where someone has abused them. How else would they learn how to do it? Mm -hmm. Sex offenders. Most sex offenders are going to have had someone offend them sexually when they were young, and there was no one around to protect them. Now, that doesn't, that doesn't absolve them once they become adults and know the right thing to not go get help. And you see, that's the key thing. When you're a child, you can't, you can't be responsible for what happens to you. You know, I could go out tomorrow or this moment and drive down the road, and someone could cross the yellow line and hit my car. There's nothing I can do about that. But mm-hmm. I am responsible for taking care of myself once that happens. We can't always be responsible for what happens to us. Life is full of change, and some of those changes, many of those changes, are very, very sad and difficult and tragic. But I can choose how I'm going to respond to the injury or to whatever someone does to me. I can either turn inward and seek help from other people and pull on my own strength, or I can take it out on someone else. Mm. And adults have the responsibility to make sure that we don't pass it on. How many times have you heard people say, well, they passed it to me, I'm going to pass it to you. You don't have to do that. Right, right, yeah. And a responsible adult doesn't do that. Well, it doesn't solve anything. It doesn't. You're just contributing no. to the problem. Like you said, contributing to change. You want to contribute to good change, not 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 bad. You bad want to become thing, the change. Thing. You want to become the change that you that you want to see in everyone else. You want to, to to if you want to see love and light and experience love and light. You want to become love and light. Right, right. I, I've got to ask you um, if we want to talk a little bit more about when the drum major died. But before we do. I know you develop very you develop complicated multifaceted characters for our off the shelf listeners who maybe maybe readers interested in character development or maybe writers who are interested in it. What process do you follow, Andrew? If you follow any process at all when you're creating your characters, do you do character sketches? What do you, how do you develop your characters so they are there's a lot of depth to them? Well, two things I want to say right off. A lot of writers, or you'll hear in writing, that um, plot flows out of character. Kind of hold that thought. Plot flows out of character. The second thing is being a psychotherapist, um, character just isn't something that I have to work at. It's almost as if my characters come to me. I'll see something, I'll read something, I'll hear something, or I'll just imagine something. And it's almost as if the characters come to me and start talking. A lot of times when I'm driving, my characters are talking in my head. My challenge is always how do I create a plot that will entertain my readers? That's where I have to fall back on character. And 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 while my characters come to me, I have to then start asking them questions. For instance, mm-hmm. I have this story that I don't have the, the title to it. I've, I've moved from a place where I tend to have titles, and then I write the story to a place where, like with the drum major jive, 
um, I I had the title, but then I had to come up with the story. Now I'm at a place where I get the stories, and then I have to think of the title. So I, this, okay. this, this book that I'm talking about right now, I've been working on it for probably two or three years on and off. I tend to work on several projects at one time. And I was sitting in the car waiting for my 15-year-old to come out from school. And I've written a fair amount on this, um, this story that I'm talking about. But there's one piece that was really missing, and I think I identified it, and I think it was really important for me in my whole process of writing to identify not only this piece but what this piece was. And this piece was the problem. Every character in every story, whether it be a short story, a novel, or a novella, has to have a core problem. Yes. Now, in When the Drum Major Died, the core problem for Florina was that she had a secret. She had not told her parents that she had been married and that her husband had died. But literally, the problem was she had not told her parents that she had been married. That Mm -hmm. haunted her. You know, there's many ways of looking at the problem. It can be what haunts your character. But every story has to have a problem. And and what I would say to people that are writing is, Learn as much about your character as possible, uh, and there are different ways that characters reveal themselves to to, um, to to writers, and that's okay. There's no one special way that it has to happen, but make sure that in the process, whatever your process is of learning about your character, that you find out and you identify what is the problem that they're struggling with in this particular story. Mm-hmm. What is the problem that they're dealing with in this one particular story? Because once you figure that out, that is in essence the golden thread that's going to determine how they behave in the face of the events, the plot events that happen to them. Ah, okay. So then, once you get that, you said you ask your characters questions to to start to develop your characters, giving them personality, etc. That's until you do you just leave it it's more of an open process for you or do you add a lot of structure around the process of actually developing your characters I add a lot of structure around my uh, around developing my plot again and that's where I want to go back to what I said earlier in writing you'll often hear that plot flows out of character the more you know your character the more you will understand and know the events of the story. And what I have had, what I've struggled with, and I don't know what other people struggle with, but what I, what I identified when I was sitting in the car that day, this week, um, was that I knew a lot about this story. I knew that this story, uh, I mean, I, I think I can talk about it. It's, I knew that this story, and I'd written about a woman who's a surgeon, and she is divorced. And the story literally opens with her going to her engagement party on a Friday night. She's to be married the day after, which is Sunday. And I've written probably 200 pages into this book. But Mm -hmm. what I did not know was her problem was that she never knew. She could not, on that Friday, when she she had two things she had to do. She had to go and sign the papers to... um, put her condo on sale. It was the condo where she had lived with her first husband. But then when they divorced, she continued to live there. She was signing the papers for the real estate agent to put it on to put it on the market 
when she got there, knowing that she was going to leave and then go to her engagement party to marry her second husband, when she got there, it suddenly hit her. I can't remember why I divorced. What caused me to divorce my first husband? Wow. (laughs) And that's a problem. Particularly when you're getting ready to get married again. And then, of course, I've got all the events that have happened. Like I said, I've written about 200 pages. But Mm -hmm. now I'm going to go back and I'm going to embellish what I've written with this understanding that I have now. This is what's haunting her. And it haunts her throughout the book and she has to deal with that. I don't know why. I I don't know what it was that made me divorce. My wow. first husband, and then of course, and of course, there's events that are going to really force her even more to look at that. But I think, and, and let me just say, I had to go back and look at my novel, The House, to understand that. I had oh. to go back and look at my novel, The House. I said, you know, people love the book, my book, The House, um, and I, I really, I hope people will will read the book when the drum major died. But you know, The House is something that I hear people talk about forever and a day, and it's really wonderful, and I thank them for it. Um, Right. It's really good when you can create something that people like. But, you know, I had to go back, and I'm sitting in the car, and I'm going, There's some, I knew there was something missing with this, this current book that I'm working on. And I went, okay, Angela, what is it about? How did you how did you work out? And literally, I had to outline the problem first. And that's what uh, I did. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, you've shared some valuable tips with our off-the-shelf listeners in regards to character development. I love your style of writing. I mean, you you are very, very talented. I wanted to ask you next, got to get this in. We have about seven minutes left. Can you let our off-the-shelf listeners know where they can get copies of your books, including your book, uh, The House? Can you let them all know the drum, when the drum major died? Keeping Secrets, can you let us know where each of your books can be purchased and where people can read like an excerpt of your book? Oh, well, you can definitely get a copy of my book, all of them, all four of my books. You can get them from Amazon, both paperback as well as Kindle, ebook editions. And you can also, at Amazon, if you have a Kindle device, I'm sure they're still doing it, they can give you an excerpt free that you can read. So okay. go to for all of that, you can go to, to Amazon Kindle and get a, a paperback, and you can also... If you have a Kindle ebook on your phone or a Kindle ebook device on your phone or a Kindle itself, you can get an excerpt of any of my books and read them. Um, and you can also go to Barnes and Noble and order copies of Keeper of Secrets. I've got to talk to you to find out how you get your books in Walmart because um, that's something that I have not yet done. But um, you can certainly go to my website, and my website will. AngelaFloyd.com, which you gave to people at the beginning, A-N-J-U-E-L-L-E-F-L-O-Y-D.com. You can also read um, excerpts from certain, certain of my books there. But basically, just go to, to Amazon. It's got everything there. Okay. Are you on any social networks? And if you are, can you let our off-the-shelf listeners know where they can find you online? Facebook, uh, Readers of Angel Floyd. Uh, Pinterest, Angel Floyd. I have... Five um, Twitter accounts, Angel slash Floyd, uh, Angel author Angel, um, and let's see, I'm with 
LinkedIn. I have three LinkedIn accounts. One of them is certainly in my name. The other one is Denise Weeks, my maiden name. Um, oh, I'm on Google Circles and Google Plus, Angela Floyd. Um, if you just go and Google my name, Angela Floyd, A-N-J-U-E-L-L-E, or A-N-J-U-E-L-L-E, and then Floyd, F is in Frank, L-O-Y-D, everything will come up, and you can certainly find me. Now, when a drum major died, when did that come out, and when do you expect to have your next book out on the market? When the drum major died, debuted Saturday, February 1st, or okay. a little bit earlier online, but uh, 2014, Saturday, February 1st. And I'm hoping that maybe um, next fall, 2015, if not sooner, that I'll have this next book out. Uh, I'd, I'd like to. Ha- It'd be good to have five books out at one time. <laughs> So you bring? Or do you do you generally write and pub, have a book published once a year? You know, it's it's kind of it's kind of been every other year. Um, you know, it, it just depends. Um, you know, that's one thing I like I like about self publishing because I'm still a mother and I and we still have a 15 year old at home. My oldest two daughters are 26 and 22. My oldest daughter is now studying for the bar the California bar, she finished law school. And then our 22-year-old is in the middle of her her last year and a half in school and applying to graduate school. So I don't, they're kind of on their own, but we still have our 15-year-old and, you know, kids need their parents. So right. um, I'm hoping that I have something out certainly by this time next year, but if not, maybe sooner. Oh, okay. Okay. We have had the pleasure, and I just love the way Andrew goes in depth in her responses. I really appreciate that. We've had the pleasure of having Andrew Floyd here with us this Saturday on Off the Shelf Radio. And, again, she is a psychologist, a wife, as you heard her say, and a mother. And some of the books she's authored include The House, Keeper of Secrets, Seasons of Perda, and her latest book, When the Drum Major Died, and she said she expects to have another book out on the market in about a, a, about a year. So her, she is very, very talented. I want to give you her website again. It's andrewfloyd.com, and that's spelled A-N-J-U-E-L-L-E-F-L-O-Y-D.com. You can go there and learn more about her her bio and check out just read some excerpts of her book so you can really get a flavor and a feel for her style and how she does have a command uh with, with you know the the words the, the written word and the, the art form of just creating using words to create written story she's she's if you read her work you'll see what i'm saying again it's angelfloyd.com we thank angel for being here with us on Off the Shelf today, we thank all of you for tuning in. After the show archives, if you came in late into the show, you can go back and listen to it in its entirety. We encourage you to tell your friends, your family, your colleagues, book lovers everywhere, people who appreciate art and story, to tune in to Off the Shelf. Just tell them, tune in to Off the Shelf Saturday mornings, 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time or New York City Time, where we always bring you just wonderful guests. They share such valuable information that if you had to pay for it, it could be pricey, and it's free. All you have to do is either come into the chat room, or dial in through the line, or just click on to Off the Shelf 
on your mobile device or your laptop, your desktop, however you want to connect to the show again. Saturday mornings, 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Thank you, Angela. Thank you so much for a wonderful show. I'll send you an email with the link after the show streams. To everybody, as I always tell you, you are incredibly amazing. You are awesome. Go out and create a wonderful day for yourself. See you back here next Saturday. Bye for now.